0: This morning we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 14, so I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there to Genesis 14, and uh, as we consider this chapter, we're going to be doing so under, under two main headings, under two main headings. First of all, serve the Lord with boldness, serve the Lord with boldness, and secondly, come to the priest king. Serve the Lord with boldness, and come to the priest-king. And so first, let's look at the, the first 16 verses of the chapter. Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. And it came about... In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Elisar, and Kedorlimer, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, and with Bershah, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, and Shemaber, king of Zeboyim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlimer. But the thirteenth year, they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedolomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in ashtaroth Karnain, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Imim in Sheva Kiriathain, and the Horites in their Mount Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to In Mishpat, that is Kadesh, they conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hezazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedorlimer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol, and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night and he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot and his possessions and also the women and the people. And so the, the chapter that is before us gives us the, the history of the first explicit war that is recorded in scripture. Now I don't think there's any reason to suppose that this actually was the first war in world history or that these were the first battles simply because this is the first clear record uh, that we have of war and battle in the scripture. Indeed, I think we, we saw some hints of war back in chapter 10 when we considered the case of Nimrod and his his empire building. The names of the kings Involved in this conflict and the places over which they reigned are laid out for us there in in verses 1 and 2. And broadly speaking, the situation is that the four kings that are mentioned in in verse 1 are from the region that is north or northeast of the land of Canaan. These are kings from uh, the region that we would anciently think of as Mesopotamia, Babylonia, Assyria, and the ancient world, corresponding. Broadly speaking, to uh, parts of Iraq or potentially Syria, uh, that general area of the world today, and then these five kings that are mentioned in verse two are kings uh, from the area uh, down uh, toward the Reds, uh, excuse me, down toward the Dead Sea—in uh, what we would know as Palestine today. The cause for the war is given there in verse 4. These kings near the Dead Sea had been subject to Kedorlaomer, the king of Elam, for 12 years. Now, we don't know how that relationship between Kedorlaomer and these kings originated, but only that it did exist for a dozen years. It's likely that there was some arrangement in which those kings would, would pay tribute to uh, Kedorlaomer or something of that nature, but in the 13th year, for whatever reason, they decided to call it off and to rebel against his authority. And so in the following year, the 14th year, Cedolomer and the kings who were allied with him go on this punitive expedition against these rebellious kings down by the Dead Sea. But that was not all that they did in this expedition. And verses 5 through 7 give us some of the other areas that they attacked on this expedition and conquered. The expedition of these Mesopotamian kings uh, comes down and attacks the Rephaim in Ashtoreth-Karnaim. Now given what we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 13, we learn that the Rephaim lived in the area uh, toward the east of the Jordan River. That is uh, the area sometimes referred to as the Transjordan. The area also referred to as Bashan. And then this coalition uh, attacked the Rephaim there, and they continue on this, this march down on the eastern side of the Jordan, conquering the peoples they meet along the way. They, we read of them fighting the Emim the and Sheva Kiriathim. likewise, is one of the towns there in the, in the Transjordan, on the east side of the Jordan. It uh, is mentioned as uh, one of the tribes that was, was given to, to Reuben, uh, the town of, uh, of Kiriathame in Joshua 13, 19. And then they, they keep on going south. They go even to the south of the Dead Sea and attack the, the Horites in Mount Seir. This was the area that would subsequently be inhabited by uh, the, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. And then they, they go down and they swing to the west out to uh, out to Kadesh, and then they come uh, around up on the the west side of the Dead Sea. They attack Hezazon Tamar, which is uh, identified in Second Chronicles twenty verse two as the town of En Gedi, which is right there on the uh, the west bank of the Dead Sea. And having taken this long march down the down the eastern side of the Jordan, having swung down through Mount Seir, and now coming back on the other side of the Dead Sea they finally now get to the place where the rebels are. And therefore, the fight comes as described in verses 8 through 12. They array themselves in the valley of Siddim, there by the Dead Sea, four kings of the Mesopotamian coalition against the five rebel kings from the Dead Sea region. And the battle goes against the rebel kings, and they flee. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fall into these tar pits that are mentioned there as being in the region. The other survivors flee to the hill country, and the army of the Mesopotamian coalition gets loaded up with the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. They take the food, they take Lot and his possessions as well. And as it turned out, it would seem that the taking of Lot was their fatal mistake. That seems to be the thing that really undoes this Expedition of these Mesopotamian kings. And so they, they get loaded up with the spoil and then they, they get out of there. This was the War of the Kings, as it is often called in the, the headings in our Bibles for, for Genesis 14. These kings had campaigned for hundreds of miles, conquering group after group. And they finally get to the five rebel kings, and from all we can tell, it looks like they dispatched these five rebel kings just as easily as everyone else. On their march, they were victorious, and it appears that they were either done and were headed back home, or else they were just continuing the campaign as they headed on north. We, we don't know for sure in terms of what they were doing after they conquered these five rebel kings. But again, the Mesopotamian coalition had made one fatal mistake. They captured Lot, likely his family, and they took his possessions As well, And for all we know, they may have been taking him back to uh, sell him into slavery or something of that nature. He had fallen into the hands of a victorious army and his prospects were not good. But we found in verse 13 that there was a fugitive, a survivor of this battle of the kings who made his way to Abram at the Oaks of Mamre, which is, as was identified for us back in chapter 13, verse 18, the area that we know as, as Hebron. Abram is there, and Abram had made alliances. We, uh, the, uh, the language that's used there in, uh, uh, in speaking of uh, Abram being allied with these men, Mamre and Eshkol and Aner, indicates that there is a covenant that exists between these men. Now we don't know for sure whether these men were idolaters and whether the covenant was simply uh, something of a, of a civil nature, And certainly, if these men were not worshipers of the one true God, Abram would not have had religious fellowship with them. But even if they were idolaters, their separation in matters of religion did not mean that they could not be co-belligerents in civil matters and in military matters. As long as God had not prohibited that kind of alliance, it was allowable. Certainly there would be later prohibitions of that kind of thing uh, about the nation of Israel not entering into covenant with pagan nations, but there was no prohibition against Abram entering into alliances with these other men, even if they were not worshippers of the one true God. And so Abram is in covenant with these men, and when he hears what has happened to Lot, he calls out the trained men of his household, 318 of them, and they all head out in hot pursuit of the coalition of kings. And as we'll see below in verse 24, these other chiefs, namely Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, they go with Abram as well on this uh, pursuit of the Mesopotamian kings. And they presumably bring out their households, uh, their servants, their clans, uh, just as Abram did. And so they all go together against these four victorious kings. Now we don't know total how many men were with. Abram and all of his allies, Abram has 318 men from his own household, but I think it's a safe guess that the men with Abram and these other allies of his are considerably smaller force than that of the Mesopotamian army. But Abram and his men, his allies, pursue these kings as far as Dan, which is either mentioned as reference to the the area that would later be inhabited by the tribe of Dan, or else uh, perhaps mentioned as the source of the springs of the Jordan River, as Josephus would describe it. And at that point, Abram had pursued these kings for for roughly about 100 miles, going from from Hebron, where he was at the Oaks of Mamre, up to, to this area of Dan. And then Abram divides his force by night, defeats them, and then subsequently chases them, north of Damascus for another 40 miles or so, pressing the victory and continuing to, uh, to defeat and rout these kings. And then we see in verse 16 that when Abram's victorious men return, they bring with them the goods that they recover from the Mesopotamian army, they bring back Lot and his possessions, they bring back the women and all of the people. Now, what should we glean from this Count of war, and we see here that Abram's actions demonstrate that faith and godliness do not stand opposed to decisive action, even action of a military sort. the The situation here, I think, is a bit tricky in that Abraham is not officially a military leader; he's not officially a political leader, and yet he organizes. This expedition wins the victory and it's clear from verse 20 as we'll we'll read on down here in a few minutes that God Most High was the one who gave him the victory. Now given all that we see here, all the evidence that we have in chapter 14, this was a good and right thing for Abram to do. To get up his men, get up his allies and go out in pursuit of these kings. But at, at a practical level, I think we need to ask how we can justify Abraham's actions uh, without justifying a mode of operation that is practically that of a vigilante. And how we can take Abram as an example without becoming vigilantes ourselves, taking the law into our own hands when something happens that doesn't seem to be right and we want to make it right. Well, let's just be clear that Abram's conduct here is not a justification for people to take the law into their own hands, however we may think fit. That's not what we should glean from this. John Gill was of the opinion that uh, Abram's behavior was justified on the basis of the kidnapping of Lot because Lot himself was a mere sojourner in Sodom and not... a uh, a regular member, if you will, of the town. And on that basis, at least according to to Gill's line of thought, if there was a dispute between Kedorlimer and the people of Sodom, he should leave Lot out of it. Lot had no part in this quarrel between Sodom and Kedorlimer. He was an outsider and not a party to the quarrel. Calvin was of the opinion that even though Abram did not yet possess the promised land, God had nevertheless promised the land to him, and in that had given him the right of the sword, and that also God raised up Abram in a special way here, similar to the way in which he would later raise up the judges in the the nation of Israel, and that there was a singular calling here for Abram as there would be singular callings for the judges, just because of what we read of of Ehud and Jephthah and Samson doing is not justification for us uh, just to to get up the idea, hey, we don't like what's going on here, there's some wickedness going on, let's try to fix it, let's fix it this way. That's not what we should be gleaning from these passages. I would also add that I think we need to be careful in that we don't actually have all of the particulars concerning the political situation in which Abram found himself. The fact that he was in covenant with these men, Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner, And the fact that he has more than 300 men in his household who are trained for war seems to indicate that they were functioning in an environment in which they know that they need to have each other's backs in the case of wrongs and injustices. They can't just call the police and expect that everything is going to turn out well. And it may be that even from a civil perspective, they were not directly under the authority of any king. And so in a sense, they may have been the law of the land, at least in the neighborhood of Hebron. And so even though Abraham was not an official political leader, he may have been kind of a de facto political leader. And thus, when Lot, a member of Abram's clan, gets carried off, it may well have been incumbent upon him, and therefore incumbent upon those who were in covenant with him to execute justice on Lot's behalf. Now, whichever explanation of the situation here is most correct, again, the tenor of the text is clear, that Abram was in the right, that God gave him the victory, and as we'll see later, Melchizedek pronounced a blessing upon Abram. Abram was doing the right thing. And even though our circumstances are different from his, and thus our response to situations must necessarily fall in line with the political and civil realities under which we live, nevertheless, there is a lesson here for us. Let's notice the bravery, the boldness, and the trust in God which Abram possessed. Abram saw the situation which had come upon Lot by these plundering kings. He gets his men together and he goes after them. Again, a takeaway lesson here is that true faith and true godliness do not oppose, but actually encourage, decisive action in the face of wrong. Matthew Henry expressed it this way. He said, religion tends to make men not cowardly, but truly valiant. The righteous is as bold as a lion. The true Christian is the true hero not all of us will be placed in situations where we need to take physical action of the sort described here in the sense of restraining and resisting evil and pursuing justice by means of physical force. Now, some of us may perhaps be, but all of us need to be willing to stand up and to do the right thing, trusting in the grace and help of God. Let's face it, it would probably have been easier, in a sense, for Abram When he hears the news from this fugitive who comes to him, just to shrug his shoulders and say, rotten luck, poor lot, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. He could have said that and then just continued on with his normal procedure of things, but he didn't do that. He stood up and took action. He saw the evil that was going on and he stood against it. Now the application of this principle, I think, is as broad and as diverse as the circumstances in which we, as God's people, find ourselves. There is application here for police officers and military personnel. There's application here for for husbands, as we need to decisively lead and love and protect our wives and families, both from earthly evils and spiritual evils. There is application here for fathers and mothers to seek to protect their children from physical and spiritual evils. There's application here for elders in the church as we need to be on guard for ourselves and for all of the flock. We have to be ready to preach the word in season and out of season, which is to say when people want to hear it and when people don't want to hear it, we have to be ready to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction because the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves, teachers after their own desires, to turn away their ears from the truth and so turn aside to myths, as Paul speaks in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Elders need to learn a lesson from, from Abram to be bold and unflinching in the cause of God and to learn from him that some things cannot happen without a clear and decisive response. Being bold and unflinching doesn't necessarily mean yelling and hollering, but it does mean being willing to do the right thing It does mean reproving, rebuking, and exhorting even when it's hard, even when it's not popular, even when people get upset because of it. I certainly need to be reminded of that as an elder. Our motto needs to be that of Paul. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so I think we can all stand to learn from Abram's response. We have to know what is right, and then we have to do it. Trusting in the Lord's help and the Lord's grace, even when it is hard, even when it is dangerous, Abram was a man of faith. He trusted in the Lord, and the Lord gave the victory. Now let's look ahead to uh, to verses seventeen through twenty-four as we come to our second point, which is go to the priest-king. Verse seventeen. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedorlimer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandaled thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now in these final verses of Genesis 14, we see Abram's return from the slaughter of the kings, as Hebrews 7.1 refers to it. And as Abram comes back, he meets this very interesting man, Melchizedek priest of God most high. Now, we'll speak more of Melchizedek here in a moment, but first let's notice Abram's response to the king of Sodom upon his victorious return. Verse 21, the king of Sodom offers to give Abram the possessions that he recovered from Kedorlaomer and those other kings. All he asks is that Abram give back the people, and uh, presumably meaning the, the people of Sodom who had been carried off. Abram could have all the stuff, just, just give the people back to us. But Abram says no. He says in verses 22 and 23 that he had sworn this oath to the Lord that he would not take anything from the property of the king of Sodom that he had recovered. He wouldn't take a thing, not a thread, not a sandal thong, nothing. He would take enough for the young men to have something to eat, whether that be that, uh, to make up for, for what they had already eaten as they were in pursuit of the kings or to give them a, a victory meal at the end. Um, he's willing to, to take something for them to eat and he'll let his fellow chiefs have their share. It's fine. He says, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, these guys can, can have their share of the plunder. And uh, Matthew Henry, I think again is helpful here. He said, those who are strict in restraining their own liberty yet ought not to impose "...those restraints upon the liberties of others, nor to judge them accordingly. We must not make ourselves the standard to measure others by. A good man will deny himself that liberty which he will not deny another." So Abram limits himself and says, I'm not going to take it. These other guys, that's between you and them. They can have their share. That's fine. But as for Abram, he did not want the king of Sodom to be able to say that he had made Abram rich. Perhaps he may have suspected that the king of Sodom would, would someday boast about this as having made Abram rich or that in some way he might try to make Abraham uh, beholden unto him or to bring Abram into subjection to himself, to have some, some leverage over Abram. Whatever precisely was behind Abram's concern that the king of Sodom might say that he had made Abram rich, Abram wants to cut that possibility Off right here. Get that completely off of the table. Abram went after the kings to get Lot, not to get rich. He had gotten Lot, and that was sufficient for him. Now then, and what is much more important here, what about this man, Melchizedek? We don't know much, do we? He shows up here, verses 18 through 20, three verses in the book of Genesis. He shows up again in Psalm 110, which we sang this morning, he shows up again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5 and 6 make some passing mentions of his name, uh, but really it's only when we get to Hebrews 7 that we get an explanation of who this man Melchizedek was. And if you look at Hebrews 7, it might be helpful to have a finger there in, in Hebrews 7 because I'll be referencing a lot of uh, a lot of what goes on in, in Hebrews 7. If you look at what the writer to the Hebrews does, he gives an explanation of Melchizedek by actually giving an exposition of what happened here in Genesis 14. Hebrews 7, the writer to the Hebrews there, brings out a few things about Melchizedek on the basis, simply of these three verses, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And what that writer does is he brings out the ways in which Melchizedek Foreshadows the coming of the great king, the greatest king, the great priest, the greatest priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. He points out that Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Thus, in in his one person, he combined those two offices. Melchizedek, Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. It's also pointed out to us the significance of his name. His very name. Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he was king of a place called Salem. Now, this usually has been understood to be none other than Jerusalem. And certainly we do see Jerusalem referred to as Salem explicitly in Psalm 76, two. But in his exposition of this, the writer of the Hebrews lay stress not so much on the location where Melchizedek was king, but on the name of the place where Melchizedek was king. Melchizedek was king of Salem, which, by translation, is to say King of Peace. Think think of that word Shalom. This is this is where he was king. He was king of Salem, King of Peace. And so this man is both king and priest. His name means king of righteousness, being king of Salem is being king of peace. The writer also points out that Melchizedek is without father or mother. And I think that what the writer to the Hebrews is saying there is not literally that this man, Melchizedek, neither had a father nor a mother, but that what he means is in the sense of the very next words that he uses there in Hebrews 7.3 when he says that Melchizedek is without Genealogy. In other words, there is no there's no lineage given for him in uh, in the book of Genesis. I know there's uh, there's some dispute on. Uh, some have believed that that Melchizedek was not actually a real human being, but simply a Christophany, Christ himself in the Old Testament, in the appearance of a man. I uh, actually don't think that is correct. I think that the Melchizedek was actually a man. And in the same sense that you and I are men. And that when the writer to the Hebrews says, without father or mother, he simply means that there's no no genealogy given. His father's not listed. He just, pop, shows up out of nowhere here in Genesis 14. And uh, likewise, when the writer says uh, that he has uh, no end of life, the point is not that Melchizedek never died and that if you go to Palestine somewhere and look in a cave, you might find him. Who knows? I think the point is that in some of these ways, this mysterious man, Melchizedek, bears some some shadowy resemblance to Jesus. There are some ways in which Melchizedek is a type of the Messiah who was to come. Jesus, likewise, in an even greater way, is king of righteousness, king of peace. He, too, is a king who is a priest. According to his divine nature, Jesus had neither beginning of life nor end of days. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. And he continues on as a priest forever. His priesthood goes on to eternity. And we also find there in Hebrews 7 the significance of the fact that Abram paid the tithe to Melchizedek and that Melchizedek pronounced a blessing upon Abram. The fact that these events played out as they did in Genesis 14 served to demonstrate to us the greatness of this man, Melchizedek. These events playing out as they did indicate that this mysterious and almost unknown man was actually even greater than Abraham. It sounds almost shocking and irreverent to say it that way. We know Abram as the man with the promises, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of believers, and so he is. But Melchizedek was even greater than he was. And that is exactly the point that the writer to the Hebrews makes in Hebrews 7 verse 4 and then in verses 6 and 7. This is what he says. He says, Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Then down in verse 6, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is the Levites, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. This suffices to make the point, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And this also then means that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood, since Levi, so to speak, paid tithes through Abram when Abram paid the tithe to Melchizedek, since Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor at the point in time when the tithes were paid. It is in this way that we are shown the greatness of the priesthood of Melchizedek and therefore the greatness of the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a greater priest than the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. And this is demonstrated by the fact that Melchizedek, the type of Christ, is greater than Abram. And as we think about this issue of Melchizedek being a type of Christ, it is also helpful for us to see that this is not simply something which was seen after the fact. Sometimes in in respect to Old Testament typology, we can look at something in the Old Testament and then look back, seeing uh, what we know about Christ's coming, his life and death and resurrection, and we can see some, some shadowy resemblance of something in the Old Testament. that Wow, that, that looks kind of like Jesus. And so it is here, but even here we have more than that. There is also biblical prophecy. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be like Melchizedek. That's where Psalm 110 comes in. Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Jews clearly understood that Psalm 110 was messianic. Jesus clearly understood that Psalm 110 was messianic. And you you may recall that exchange in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus asked them the question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, well, he's the son of David. And then Jesus, great at asking questions, says, Then how does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord? And inside Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And if you remember there, as Matthew laid it out for us, no one was able to answer him a word in this regard. They couldn't come back and say, well... Psalm 110 has nothing to do with the Christ, because they knew Psalm 110 had everything to do about the Christ. And so, you see, in this case of of Melchizedek and Christ, we have not only the type that is presented in the historical narrative and some important implications which Hebrews 7 brings out for us, but we also have the explicit prophecy of Psalm 110, that the Messiah would be both a king and a priest, that the Messiah would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And even though we do not find Melchizedek mentioned by name in the prophecy of Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, nevertheless, we do find the same truth there, that the Messiah would be both a priest and a king. And this is what we find there in Zechariah 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he, will, he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He sits on the throne, so he's king. He's also a priest, priest king, the man who is the branch, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what does all of this have to do with us? You might be asking that question. And if you are, that is a good thing. Because what I want you to do with what we learned from Genesis 14 about Melchizedek is the same thing that the writer to the Hebrews wanted his readers to do with Melchizedek. He wanted them to see that since Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and greater than the Levitical priest, that therefore Jesus, whom Melchizedek foreshadowed, is also greater than the Levitical priest. He talks about how those uh, priests of, uh, who were of the tribe of Levi became priests without an oath. He talks about how those priests of Levi were unable to continue in office forever because of their death. He says that perfection was not based on the Levitical priesthood. But Jesus is different. Jesus became priest on the basis of an oath from God, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus lives forever. Jesus has an indestructible life. His priesthood goes on forever. And the implication that the writer to the Hebrews draws out there as chapter 7 comes to a close is that therefore he is able to save forever those who come to God through him. And so, my friends, go to the priest king. Run to Christ, turn from sin, and trust in Him. And I would also add that just as the reality is greater than the shadow, so Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. We've been thinking about that. The point has already been made that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, greater than the Levitical priests, and therefore Jesus is greater than the Levitical priest. But let the point be clear to us, that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Again, certainly this man was great, but Jesus is greater. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, but Jesus is in reality the king of righteousness. He's the king of righteousness because he is the king who has true righteousness in himself and who gives true righteousness to his people. He is the king of righteousness because He is the savior of his people and imputes his righteousness to his people when they trust in him. Jesus alone can make the sinner righteous. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. And likewise, Melchizedek is king of Salem, king of peace, but he was king of peace in the sense that that was the name of the place where he was king. Jesus, however, is king of peace in the sense that he brings peace, that he brings peace to his people. He establishes peace between his people with God, where before there had been enmity and strife. And Paul speaks of this in Romans 5.1, where he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Being granted righteousness by our king, we have peace with God. And not only that, Jesus is king of peace in that he brings peace to us in our circumstances. And so he says in John 14:27, "Peace I leave with you; my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful." Jesus is the true king of peace. He gives us peace with God. He gives us peace in the midst of violent upheavals of life. By his grace, he also enables us to live at peace with others. And Jesus is the true and final priest who blesses us. Now, Kizedek could and did pronounce a blessing upon Abram, but only Christ can bring true blessedness. Peter spoke of this in Acts chapter 3, verse 26. He speaks of the blessing which Jesus brings, and he says, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, By turning every one of you from your wicked ways. God the Father sent Jesus to bless us. How does that blessing come? By Jesus turning us from our wicked ways to his way. The way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way of blessedness, holiness, and peace. And this is a miracle of blessing that only God, only God can bring about. Because by nature we are are sinful and desire to walk in all of those ways which God has forbidden. And this is evident simply by comparing the natural desire of one's heart with the commandments of God. If we make that comparison between what the natural, unregenerate heart that is alienated from God wants with the commandments of God, we see that there's a big divide between the two. Because left to ourselves, we don't want to love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our strengths. Left to ourselves, we don't want to serve God and obey God. Left to ourselves, we don't want to love our neighbors as ourselves. Left to ourselves, we want to put other things before God. Left to ourselves, we hate, we commit acts of immorality, we rebel against our parents, we steal, we covet, we lie, we have evil desires of every kind. Left to ourselves, that's who we are. And the consequences of all of those things is judgment and hell. Left to ourselves and left in our sin, we deserve the judgment of God. We deserve to reap what we sow. That's how it works. But God raised up Jesus, this priest in the order of Melchizedek, to do what? He raised him up to bless us. How does Jesus bless us? Jesus blesses us by turning us from our wicked ways. And in turning from our wicked ways, Jesus turns us to God so that we are truly blessed, truly blessed with these things that we've been speaking about, righteousness and peace. This is why Jesus came, is to bring this kind of blessedness. And so, my friends, turn away from your sins and look to Jesus today because Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, went to the cross to bear the punishment for sinners, and rose again on the third day to show that the victory had been won, that he had accomplished that redemption for us. And then after 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. This is the gospel. This is what Christ has come to do for us, to bless us, to turn us from our wicked ways. He's accomplished it for us by his life, death, and resurrection. And so turn to Christ today and look to him. And keep looking toward Him. Whether today is the first day upon which you have looked to Christ or whether you're, you've already been looking to Christ for a long time already, keep looking to Him. Continue trusting in Him. Continue obeying Him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. As we find in those wonderful words of Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, since Jesus continues forever... He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so draw near to God today through this king, through this priest, and submit to Christ as king and priest. Submit to him today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... This account of Melchizedek and Abram, we thank you for uh, the way that this very obscure man points us to Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that it is in Jesus that true blessedness comes. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would submit to you, that we would trust in Christ, that we would be turned, every one of us, from our wicked ways, that we might serve you, and honor you, and love you with all that we are.